Whether you call it before Christ or before the common era, if you're a godless heathen, the world 2,000 years ago and beyond was just as bizarre as it is now, maybe even more so than it is today. And with that in mind, we're going to look back at some of those weird parts of early history this week on Our Weird World. Our Weird World. Welcome to Our Weird World. I am your host, John Henson, and I kind of have new equipment. I don't know if it sounds different, but I finally got a mic stand and a little pop filter, so I look all legit. Um, I, I had spent the last several episodes just kind of holding the microphone very still up to my face, and that was, you know, just not as convenient. But now I've now I just now I just feel like a real podcaster, and that's a big deal in 2020. Um yeah, this is Our Weird World. I'm your host, John Henson. I probably already said that, but I don't care. Uh, this week, we're going to do what we did for the Wild West episode uh, pretty early on, and we're going to highlight a few different stories, this time from the BC era. Uh, we're going to look at famed wrestler Arikion, uh, the Battle of Pelusium, King Gujon, Ashilas, and Empedocles. This is a big episode. I'm going to go fast, so let's dive right in. <laughs> We're going to begin at the Olympics, long before there were doping scandals or a winter version that only wealthy people cared about and could compete in. With these Olympics, real athletes competed in events like racing in full body armor, spear throwing, and naked wrestling. And not like the super sexy kind that you see, I don't know, I guess like in Las Vegas or a strip club, I don't know, where they're like wrestling in jello or mud or I don't, it's whatever. Um, <laughs> no, rather than uh, being a competition to prove which country could throw stuff the farthest and run the fastest like it is today, only freeborn Greeks were allowed to compete in the first few versions of the Olympics. And in 564 BC, Arikion was the premier Pancration fighter. Uh, Pancration is an odd combination of like bare knuckle boxing and naked wrestling that was allegedly created by the god Theseus as a way to defeat to defeat the Minotaur. I don't know. Greeks are weird like that. Today, the event would really be cementized by pitting Gerard Butler and Channing Tatum with enough ab oil to lubricate just an entire factory of slip and slides. And Arikion had won the Pancration event in the previous two Olympics, and he was the clear favorite for a third straight title. However, Arikion's opponent, whose name has unfortunately been lost to history, but for, you know, for simplicity's sake, we'll call him Gary. Uh, Gary had some other ideas, all right? He wasn't about to let Arikion take another gold medal. And so as the two engaged in this sort of weird homoerotic duel, Gary contorted himself on top of Arikion, placing Arikion into a chokehold in which Gary's arms were just firmly around Arikian's neck, and then Gary's legs were wrapped around Arikian's waist and, like, pelvis area. Arikian was on his hands and knees, and, you know, at that point, with the visuals, you're trying to avoid just, like, some accidental prison scenario, and he could not break out of it. And it looked as though Gary was about to win, and all Arikian needed to do was just tap out, but he wasn't about to do that. For a brief moment, Gary loosened his grip on the chokehold, and Arikian seized the opportunity, kicked his right leg free upwards, like kind of toward Gary's butt, 
And the force of the kick allowed Arikian to roll over, grab Gary's leg, and dislocate his ankle. Gary screamed out in pain and immediately tapped out. Arikian was declared the winner for his third straight Olympics, but there was one small problem. Arikian's move to dislocate Gary's ankle was literally like his last gasp. And that's because just as Gary released his hold, Arikian suffocated to death. But since Gary tapped out and Arikian technically didn't, Arikian was still declared the winner and awarded his medal posthumously. So, you know, that's that's crazy. You know, I think that, you know, you're not going to see that in any Olympics today. Um, but it's a good start, right? Uh, on to the next story. Uh, this is the Battle of Pelusium. And this happened in 525 BC in the Nile Delta of Egypt. Uh, Cambyses II of Persia, who was in the process of taking over the world, had requested a doctor from Pharaoh Amasis II. The doctor, who was sick of the forced labor, convinced Cambyses to ask Amasis for his daughter for marriage so that he'd kind of forget about needing a doctor in the first place. Amasis, who didn't really want to start a war with the Persians, but also didn't really want to give his daughter to the sweaty, gross Persians, instead sent Nitetis, the daughter of the previous pharaoh that Amasis had conquered. And when Nitetis met Cambyses, she explained the trickery. And at that point, Cambyses was like, all right, we're just going to go take over the Egyptians now. And he gathered his troops and started to march. As the Persians marched toward Egypt, Cambyses asked the king of Arabia for safe passage through the desert, you know, so like the Tuscan raiders or whoever wouldn't give the Persians any trouble. And the Arabian king, who didn't like Amasis anyway, was happy to grant the Persians safe passage and even added several thousand troops to the cause just to get rid of the Egyptians. So by the time the Persian army arrived in Egypt, Amasis had died and left his son, uh, Samtik III, in charge. Samtik, knowing that the Persians were coming, had planned to ask the Greeks for help, but the Greeks probably hated the Egyptians too, and they decided to help the Persians instead. Samtik had more advanced weaponry than the Persians, and he also knew the terrain better than they did, so he felt confident despite being grossly outnumbered. I mean, it was essentially three to one. Um, as the Persians got closer and closer to Egypt, Samtik lined his troops along the banks of the Nile River at Pelusium, and he prepared for the assault. Although Samtik had been ruling for only a few months, he was confident his army was going to repel any attack by the mighty Persians and Greeks and Arabians could launch. What Samtik didn't take into account was the fact that Cambyses had done his research before the battle. And what Cambyses knew was that the Egyptians viewed cats as sacred animals and that killing or harming a cat in any way was going to give you a first-class ticket to hell. Even more, Cambyses used other sacred Egyptian animals like uh, ibis birds, dogs, and sheep uh, to his advantage. So when the battle started, the Persians who had somehow amassed this giant army of cats swapped their soldier shields out with just a little kitten. Cambyses ordered his men to launch the extra cats into the battlefield, littering the area with so many just cute little fuzzy animals that the Egyptians, and it caused the Egyptians to just stop dead in their tracks because they didn't want to accidentally strike one of their sacred idols dead. Um, and assuming that all of their gods were just now on the Persian side, the Egyptians, the Egyptians fled and surrendered I guess after the Persians had already massacred like 50,000 Egyptian men. Um, as a final kind of punctuation mark on the battle, Cambyses tracked down Amasis's tombs. Uh, history says he desecrated it, whatever that means. Maybe he peed on it or something. Uh, and then he burned uh, Amasis's mummy. 
And so that is how, you know, the Persians won the Battle of Pelusium uh, in their attempt to kind of just take over Egypt there. Uh, the third story is uh, about King Gujian. And uh, this story is pretty great. Uh, if only, you know, that there's not a lot of early Oriental history. I don't know if that's the PC term or not. It's Chinese. Not a lot of good Chinese history uh, from the BC area era. Um, probably because... Um, the Chinese were not one to keep very embarrassing historical records. They kind of wanted to just keep around the good stuff. Um, also like the way a lot of early Chinese records are written, is just a gigantic pain to kind of sift through because a lot of the names rhyme with each other and they all contain a lot of the same letters. So like the characters in the story get lost really easily. But one of the big stories is the story of King Gujian from the kingdom of Yu. All right. Now bear with me here because this is going to get confusing. Gujian is considered to be the last of the five hegemons, which was a group of very powerful rulers in various Chinese states during the spring and autumn period, which, despite sounding, you know, sounding like it only took, you know, a couple of months, lasted nearly 300 years. All right. I don't know why they named eras after seasons that typically last three months when it lasted 300 years. But here we go. The, the whole story starts after a Yu princess left her Wu prince and fled back home. Now, the Wu didn't take kindly to this betrayal, and they started this really long war. And when King Yongchang died, Gujian assumed the throne. King Helu of Wu figured Gujian was bad at being a king and just decided to attack the whole region of Yu. However, at the Battle of Zuili, uh, Wu was defeated and King Halu was mortally wounded. Three years later, the Wu's got their revenge and defeated the Yu's, and King Gujian was made to serve as the new Wu King Fuchai slave. <laughs> king Fuchai was the new king of Wu. All right, this is getting really hard, and this is just kind of backstory. It's not really important. Um, so Gujian was made to serve as King Fuchai's slave for three years before he was released and allowed to return to Yu, and that was a mistake. Because once he returned home, Gujian spent the next 10 years plotting his revenge. He surrounded himself with wise advisors and politicians who started chipping away at Wu's bureaucratic infrastructure with bribes, other political propaganda. And Gujian was wildly popular with the people of Yu because he never really treated himself as royalty. He only ate food that was reserved for the peasant class. And he also just spent time, like his bed was just a, a pile of sticks. He... Uh, according to records, he tasted gall and I, you know, which is another term for bile. And I don't know how you taste bile, uh, other than just making yourself throw up a lot. And that doesn't sound like a pleasant experience, <laughs> but after 10 years of plotting, Gujan launched his attack on Wu, but rather than sending his best soldiers to the front lines to intimidate the Wu army, Gujan sent convicted criminals and not because they were more ruthless, but because they'd already been sentenced to death. And that is just something like, I don't want to get political here, but really like we should send our death row inmates to the front lines of, of the battlefields in wars. Like that would be so great. You know, just be like, here you go. Here's your death sentence. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. You, you know, murdered and shot up all those people at a school, go and fight, you know, ISIS or something. But anyway, um, on the surface, you know, Gujan wasn't just really content to let criminals run suicide missions in hope that they would help you win the win the war. Instead, it just it literally ensured that his prisoners would commit suicide and get their actual death sentence. 
So as the Yu army approached the Wu capital, the first wave of Yu soldiers would just stand before their enemy, completely unarmed, and just stare blankly back at their opponents. And then without warning, the Yu soldiers would take out their knives, scream, slash their own throats, and drop dead. <laughs> like, they didn't even fight. They just killed themselves right in front of their enemy. And once that wave of soldiers had finished themselves off, another line of suicide soldiers would just take their place. And while the Wu army stood confused and watched the, the Yu soldiers, or criminals really, just decapitate themselves, Gujan's actual army snuck up behind the Wu's and spent the next three years laying siege to the Wu capital. And in the end, Gujan and his army killed uh, the Wu, whose prince, uh, the Wu's prince, who was named Yu. So Gujan the Yu defeated Prince Yu. It's so confusing. Um, but he also killed all of King Fukai's soul, uh, scholars and advisors. And when King Fukai refused to surrender, choosing to kill himself instead, um, Yu was annexed. Or no, sorry, this is God. This is so fr- <laughs> so frustrating. Um, after King Fukai killed himself, Gujan and the Yu's annexed Wu, and Gujan ruled over both regions until his death in 465 BC. Ha! Huh. That's God. That's difficult. But that's the end of that story. Uh, story number four is uh, about Asilus. And this happened actually kind of around the same time as the Battle of Pelusium. Um, Asilus was born in a small town in Greece, about 15 miles north of Athens. And when he was a boy, he was visited in a dream by Dionysius and was told to abandon the vineyards he'd been working in and focus all of his energy on playwriting, especially the new and exciting world of tragedy that had just come out. Uh, his first performance came in 499 BC at the age of 26. Now, Asilus was initiated into the Eleusinian Mysteries, which was an ancient cult that centered on a myth in one of Homer's hymns in which Demeter, the goddess of agriculture and fertility, had her daughter kidnapped by Hades and taken to the underworld. In her sadness, she caused a drought until Zeus allowed Demeter's daughter, Persephone, to return. The problem was that thanks to the rule of the fates, the white-robed incarnations of destiny, anyone who eats or drinks during their time in the underworld is destined to live there for eternity. Right? Everyone knows this. Of course. So, before Persephone was returned to Demeter, Hades tricked her into eating a few pomegranate seeds, and this required Persephone to return to the underworld for a few months each year. During the time in which Persephone lived in the underworld, Demeter refused to cultivate the earth. Ouch, I just hit, I just hit my hand on the table. Um, however, every time Persephone came back, Demeter's happiness would return, and she would actually just do her job and make crops grow and all that kind of stuff. And so this is how the Greeks explain the cycle of growth and drought in the Mediterranean, because studying actual weather patterns just, I guess, apparently wasn't a good idea. Um, this is where the Eleusinian mysteries come into play, believe, because they believe they could elevate mankind into the divine realm and make man immortal. Their initiations and rituals coincided with the period in which Persephone returned to Demeter, also known as the spring season. All participants were sworn to a vow of secrecy because all the best secret cults have that rule. However, according to Aristotle, Aeschylus revealed some of the cult secrets on stage during one of his plays. I guess I wanted, I guess the 11 herbs and spices that they used for their secret fried chicken recipe. Um, and when the Eleusinian Mysteries found out, an angry mob tried to come and kill Aeschylus, but he got away. Um, however, Aeschylus did definitely die, which is the entire point of this story. All of that other stuff was just kind of more backstory. Um, in 456 BC, 
Silas was living in Gela on the island of Sicily and was just kind of spending most of his time outdoors to outsmart a prophecy that claimed he would get killed by a falling object. What Asilus failed to take into consideration was the fact that eagles in the area often used the exposed rock that dotted the landscape to crack open turtle shells from several feet up in the air. And as with most Greek icons of his day, Asilus was bald, an eagle mistook his bald head for a rock, and launched a turtle at his dome. The turtle fell onto Asilus' head, killing him instantly. By all accounts, the turtle did survive, but uh, crazy how the prophecy did kind of come true. And yeah, Asilus died. The final story is about Empedocles, who was a Greek philosopher in Sicily. Uh, He was best known for coming up with the cosmogenic theory of the four classical elements. And if that doesn't make any sense to you, that's okay. It's one of those complex philosophical theories that college kids spend way too much time studying that doesn't actually mean anything. But to put it plainly, Empedocles theorized that the four classical elements of earth, wind, fire, and water were influenced by forces that he actually invented, which were love and strife. On one hand, love brought the elements together, whereas strife separated them. And he then used that idea to attempt to kind of explain the origin of everything. However, most of his works failed to survive over time, so we don't really have a good idea as to what most of his philosophies actually were. Um, outside of coming up with wildly complicated theories like that, Empedocles was a vegetarian and wholly believed in reincarnation. He also attempted to overthrow Sicily's oligarchic, oligarchic government, giving more power to the people, but it didn't really work. As time went on, uh, Empedocles gained a reputation for being a skilled orator, an expert on nature, and having miraculous powers that included an ability to cure disease. I don't know if that's actually true. Probably not. Uh, (laughs) Over time, the continued adoration of everyone around him caused Empedocles to really believe that he was something special. And with that in mind, he believed that the next stage in his life was coming up and he tried to reincarnate or that he needed to reincarnate into a new form. In 430 BC, he traveled to the summit of Mount Etna, which was an active volcano on the east side of the island of Sicily, and he just hurled himself into the crater, immediately (laughs) incinerating himself so that his followers would believe that his body had just vanished and that he had been transformed into into an immortal god, but no, no, he just died. Um, According to Diogenes Laertius, a Greek biographer, the volcano vomited one of Empedocles' bronze sandals out as a sign that he was not actually immortal, but rather just kind of dumb. Lucian of Samosata, who was a Syrian rhetorician, he wouldn't accept that that volcano story at all, and he just claimed that Empedocles had simply been blasted into space by by a violent eruption where, you know, just despite a few burns, uh, Empedocles lived happily ever after on the moon. Um, when we all kind of made it to the moon in the 60s and 70s, uh, Empedocles was nowhere to be found. And that is finally the end of all of our stories today. And that's it. Uh, We may return to the BC era later on because there's some other stories that I've written about that we didn't get into, but these first five here are pretty nuts. And with that, let's see what we learned. What did we learn? Number one, cats were shot out of a catapult to win a war. And while I'm a big fan of cats, the visual of cats flying through the air and scaring a bunch of uh, Egyptians is pretty funny to me. Uh, Number two, I am bald. 
Uh, I know that's hard to tell based on, I guess, the podcast logo, but then also, you know, just by hearing my voice. Um, but bald people like me need to be extra careful outdoors so our heads don't get confused for rocks and we get like turtles dropped on us or something. Uh, and number three, uh, you cannot become immortal if you throw yourself into an active volcano. You'll just die immediately. <laughs> Next week on Our Weird World, we cover the bizarre story of Catalina de Irauso, a woman who is not content with adhering to the gender norms of her time, especially because being a man has always been way more fun than being a woman. Um, it's a crazy story. It's very kind of, it, it just feels very disjointed because her autobiography is just all over the place, but a lot of stuff happens and it's nuts. So thanks for listening. Tell all your friends and keep it weird.